The views, opinions, and findings contained in this podcast are those of the host and subject matter experts. They should not be construed as official Department of Defense positions, policies, or decisions unless designated by other official documentation. Welcome to the Picking Your Brain podcast, a series from the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, or TBICOE, that focuses on the care and recovery of service members and veterans who have sustained a TBI. In March, the Department of Defense takes part in Brain Injury Awareness Month to build awareness of TBI, educate medical providers on the latest clinical recommendations, and help service members understand the risks, signs, and impacts of TBI on and off the battlefield. In this episode, TBI COE interviews the hosts of the SoftCast podcast, Command Chief Master Sergeant, or CCM, Greg Smith, and Sergeant Major Matt Parrish about the health impacts of TBI and blast-related concussion stemming from the demands of special operation combat and training. They also discuss embracing vulnerability as a sign of strength and advocating ownership of health and recovery. CCM Smith, the U.S. Special Operations Command, or U.S. SOCOM, senior enlisted leader, has an extensive background in joint special operations spanning over 30 years of service. His co-host, Sergeant Major Parrish, the senior enlisted leader for the U.S. SOCOM Preservation of the Force and Family Program, has spent his entire career within the special operations community. The conversation also includes TBICOE's Division Chief, U.S. Navy Captain Scott Coda, a military medical provider who administered care both in forward combat theaters and at home, giving him a broad range of TBI expertise. Miriam Roth, a senior clinical educator at TBICOE, is the clinical moderator for the interview. I just want to say thank you to the both of you for coming. I know all three of you are super busy people and time of, of is of the essence. So our listeners for sure really appreciate you guys coming. And I'm super excited myself to hear what you guys have to say. Um, so my first question is for you, um, uh, Chief Smith. Um, I just want to get how... Um, the soft community looks at health as a whole. So I know that being part of a team is super important. That's kind of like the glue that keeps the soft community together. So can you tell us what that means to be part of a team and how that could potentially impact a soft operator's health? Yeah, Mary, th- thanks for that question. Um, and it's a complex answer. I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief and simple. And just by saying that, um, the last 20 years has taught us the value of team and, and, and some of the unique skill sets that each member brings, which is why our assessment and selection programs are so important to make sure that we, we bring in the absolute right people for the problem sets that we're hoping to solve on behalf of the nation. And over these last 20 years has really kind of narrowed into, into a direct action focused uh, team, if you will, to, to solve some really hard problems, you know, after 9-11 and our country was attacked, um, the manner in which we we changed our focus, if you will, from our surveillance and reconnaissance, kind of long-range special operations force to a close contact to the enemy force, that has really evolved in our understanding of what makes up the force and some of the secondary issues that now affect the force. Um, just kind of a follow-up on that, because I was a clinician myself working at an MTF, and I happen to see a lot of soft operators, particularly Navy SEALs, 
Um, they seem to have neglected a lot of their health care and then were seeking out health care towards the end of career, towards retirement. Mm-hmm. I know the soft community uh, has tried to implement some policies to um, help educate soft operators on the importance of uh, seeking health care. Have you seen in, in your long career, have you seen a progression? Have you seen um, any advancements in that? So, uh, yes, short answer, yes. And I know Matt will elaborate on this quite a bit from a from a from our our preservation of the force and families aspect of it. But, you know, the stigma of both cognitive and mental health um, is is a misnomer. Is we, I th- but but the stigma of getting pulled off the team for any physical, spiritual, or psychological uh, challenge that you may be experiencing is very real. The one thing about and it's, it's, I don't think it's unique. It's to any high-performing team, the threat, even the notion that I may not be able to be part of that team because of a body, mind, or spirit issue prevents me from just doing it. And because I'm operating at such a high level already, um, whatever physical, psychological, or spiritual issue, I'm still operating at a normal level to what most normal, more normal people would see. Um, so it may not be readily apparent until the wheels come off. And we've seen this over the last decade where we've really spent, and Captain Coda will have a lot on this, I'm sure, where as we, as we looked deeper into why the total breakdown of a member, and it's what you realize is there were seven, eight other factors already happening where that member was already just living through it because the loss of team prevented them from seeking the help that they desperately needed. And we as leaders were responsible for recognizing it and oftentimes failed. Yeah. And Miriam, if I could just toss out a couple things to add on to what uh, CCM said there, I think one of the things that it's a victim of uh, our own success in a way, right? So we assess and select for people that are incredibly adaptable, right? Uh, and so they're able to overcome a lot of minor challenges that may have uh, sort of derailed others uh, in the past, right? And so a lot of times our folks, we also assess and select for an undying and unquenching passion for the mission, right? And so folks are willing to put aside everything else in support of mission. That's really great after you land on the X in a helicopter and you have to make it to that mission site to do your mission. You roll your ankle, whatever else. Hey, I will compartmentalize that and I will walk the rest of those 10 miles on a, on a broken you know ankle or twisted ankle in a heartbeat, no issues. The problem is when we return to sort of non-kinetic parts of that when we're not actually on a mission, but you have that same mindset, right? Like I will forsake everything else to ensure that I'm going to be ready for the next mission or for the next deployment for, to make the next rank, to get the next position, whatever it is. And so a lot of the skills that we assess and select for that are, that make us special are also can be a double-edged sword when overused or, uh, uh, you know, uh, when not properly mitigated, right? And so a lot of times we do see that people have been able to sort of yeah. cobble together their own health and performance up to a certain point. And unfortunately, by the time they are willing to say, hey, I might need some help in this situation, it's past the point of, uh, you know, proactive uh, resilience or, or health care, it's to a point where they haven't been able to fix it themselves. So now it's sort of at a mushroom cloud level. And so we're trying to work to go left of bang on some of those things and say, hey, before it gets to that point, use some of these amazing professionals that we have that are experts in their field to help you never get to that point. But there was such an, a resistance up front to this because yep. the mere thought of being taken off the team, off yep. the platoon, off the crew, right off the troop, 
Yep. Any of those things that that because we have we over the last 20 years we have fixated our identity on the team. Right? Your identity of both as an individual was as the individual on the team. Mm-hmm. Whether you were the assaulter, the sniper, yep. the engineer, sergeant, whatever that was, if you fell, the team failed. So I am never going to be the one that causes the team to fail. Right. You know, there's additional lead into that. So um, the importance of the team and the value of time to the individual is the other thing. So you had to represent during my time in the organization from MARSOC to uh, there at the headquarters, uh, you had to represent to the operator that if they were going to come in, there had to be value added. They had to have something that enabled them to improve their performance at some point. So performance really became part of the discussion when you had an operator sitting in front of you, you know, meaning like, hey, you're going to take an hour out of your day. I'm going to try to make you this much better so that when you do go down range, you are a full up round and, and you're ready to go. So. Those discussions went from that clinical diagnosis-based to performance-based discussions on how can we help improve you and maintain you. And, and I think, you know, we started coming up with kind of that whole human weapon system maintenance piece. You know, we maintain our weapons, we maintain our vehicles, we need to maintain the operators and, they, and enablers so that when you guys go down range, you're full up round, whatever that means to you at that point. And it became uh, better received and it was easier to get in those conversations, especially when the guys knew that they weren't going to come off. The team. We're trying to keep them on the team as much as possible and flip that discussion. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it I think it coincides with. Um professional sports Mm -hmm. going kind of through something very similar where the individual athlete, you know, and so in our case, the tactical athlete, which is a whole bunch of programs spawned off of that under human performance and some of the other things we've done. But, but when you started looking at a, an offensive lineman or a wide receiver in the NFL and the combine that they go through and then the strength and conditioning, the mental resiliency, all the things that started to happen to lengthen the life cycle of that athlete and we really started adopting a lot of those understandings of preventive maintenance. So, and if you can, if you can couch it in that way, body, mind, and spirit, if you can couch it as preventive maintenance as part of this tactical athlete, you know, 360, that's constantly having to lengthen their life cycle, it became much more acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, sir, you're, you're spot on as far as, uh, you know, focus on performance. That's where, you know, that's where POTIF lives. That's where we, uh, you know, kind of hang our hat on is, is really trying to focus on value back to the to the operator, to the, you know, to the customer, so to speak, uh, the folks in our force. And really, I'm glad, Chief, I'm glad you brought up the the part about the pro, you know, kind of sports thing, because that's really where we started gathering all, a lot of our providers from, right? And so as we as we got, you know, the best folks in the world from collegiate sports, Olympians, et cetera, et cetera, we also tried to adopt that mindset where, you know, if a kid coming out of high school gets gets recruited to go play at Alabama or Georgia or wherever, 
all his uh, his or her support atmosphere around is not looking to get them off the field, right? They're looking to do everything they can to get them on the field to make sure that they perform as well as uh, as well as possible. And so our previous model was more of like a hey, I'm looking for a crack in your armor to make to pull you off a team so that we can get you help. Now we're looking for like hey, if you'll trust us in this, we're going to treat you in the same way that those t- that those athletes are treated in that when you come to me early, uh, I'm going to help you get on the field better and faster and return to duty uh, better than you were before. And I think to your point earlier, or your question earlier, Miriam, I think we've seen great strides in that in physical over the last 10 or so years uh, within within POTIF. As a special forces guy myself, I can tell you as a team sergeant later in my career, it was much more acceptable uh, as a leader and as the new guy on the team that, hey, if I tweak my ankle or I've got something going on with my shoulder, it was 100% expected that I was going to go to physical therapy and I was going to get that taken out. The, the special operations you know profession of arms dictated that I didn't just – uh, cobbled together that injury like it was important that hey go get it fixed because so, we're going to need you later on right the push that I've been trying to make and we've been trying to make over the last couple of years specifically in POTIF and mental health is to do the same thing in all the other domains right like don't wait until you're in uh, a divorce situation to start working on your family relationships don't wait until you have these like uh, you know completely unmitigated PTSD sim- symptoms to start looking at proactive resilience yeah. in psych uh, or in spiritual yeah, but Matt you and Captain Coda just just hit on something and that is you know kind of to Miriam's you know the whole point of this traumatic brain injury is right. through this physical therapy mm-hmm. you start to notice that it's compound factors and through repeated sure. concussive events right that would normally only manifest in a shoulder or a hip or a knee or a foot you know or a back injury uh you know a fast roping out of a helicopter you know into a hard landing or you know some of the things that we've done all of a sudden you're starting to notice hey the the anger issues or the other issues that the person's manifesting because they're not healing as quick you start to realize okay there's a lot more to it and we did not have the psychological or behavioral or cognitive care in place. We had the physical care that we had put in place, but we didn't have the cognitive or behavioral care that we're really spending our time on right now as a byproduct of this of this mild to severe traumatic brain injury that we've started to really uncover, um, you know, that has led to PTS and a lot of other things. Yeah. People think of PTS as just, you know, oh, man, I just, it's, there, there's some event that happened, and it's usually related to a TBI or some sort of injury that the person is now struggling with uh, to get past that, you know. So it's all linked together, and we're really we're in we're in the second inning of a of a nine inning baseball game of really scoping this out here at SOCOM. Exactly, yes. exactly. So just to let our audience know, because um, I think all three of you have had mentioned POTIF. So, um, in case our audience is uh, not familiar <laughs> with it, it's uh, preservation of force and family which was started in 2013 in response to everything that we're discussing now. And there seems to have been great advancement since its inception, which is really, really nice to hear. Yeah. So, um, so real quick, in February of 2011, testifying before Congress, Admiral Olson, then our commander, our four-star commander was testifying before Congress. And he had talked about soft fraying around the edges because we're starting to see these injuries manifest from the surge in Iraq and Afghanistan and Captain Cody and his team and now Matt Parrish and the team that are all the guys who deal with all that. 
we led a task force that led to this, what was called pressure on the force at that time, which became preser preserving or preservation of the force. And then also our families. So preservation of the force and families is what grew out of a congressionally mandated or congressionally appropriated program that we can use. Uh, thank you so much for that. And so let's move into the TBI realm. And uh, Chief Smith, you mentioned that that concussion seems to be um, definitely um, an issue within the soft community. Um, so let's talk about some of the unique high-risk trainings that the soft operators see. Can you discuss some of the high-risk trainings that they do encounter and that um, what's being done from an operational perspective to minimize or mitigate uh, the exposure to a potentially concussive event? Yeah, th thanks for that. I'll start off and then Matt will, Matt will jump in, having gone through most of this uh, stuff as well. So um, air, land, and sea, right? So you have to think about things really in three domains and really into cyber as well now, if you think about things over time of just impact on the brain, but air, land, and sea. So from the air, you know, uh, starting off with airborne into high altitude, low opener, what we call halo or free fall uh, with heavy packs and all weather the opening shock and jarring into steep angle work, all the different stuff that happens kind of coming out of the air. Middle of the night, freezing temperatures, uh, high oxygen pre-breathing, jumping with containers connected to these things. So you're getting bounced around and toggled in the air as you go, number one. So kind of land, if you think about, um, you know, steep angle work over land, um, long 80 kilometer overland uh, uh, Humvee or, you know, through rocky, dirty mountain roads, that type of stuff, full kit, uh, engaging with a 50 cal or, or an AT4 or, or any type of heavy weapon firing into breaching. So think about placing high explosives on a door, having your head three feet from it as the door blows and then you're going through and engaging battering rams and some of those other pieces and then into the sea um, really just deep water uh, jarred around on a little mini sub or shoot out, shot out of a torpedo tube and different things that we do right now that um, that increase incredible cranial pressure and then also flying around in the air, having a 105 millimeter cannon shooting right next to your head, you know, for for repeated events. These are by themselves, maybe get knock you, you know, knock you a little bit. But over days, weeks, Matt, how many times were you, you know, shooting a Carl Gustav in 84 millimeter or dropping mortars where you're shooting 30 or 50 or 70 over two days in a row? Yeah, I think uh, for me, you know, career special forces guy. What what we didn't know early on to this, right, is, uh, you know, we looked at things like the NFL with CTE and, and concussion and things like that, and we certainly have our share of concussions, uh, you know, throughout a soft career. Most most folks that come in and assess the select, they played some sort of sports as a kid. They obviously have they're, – they're open to motor vehicle accidents, as I had a very bad one uh, that caused a significant TBI in my past. And then we have all the things that, like, you know, jumping, all these different things that Chief Smith walked out – you know, kind of talked through and walked through. I think what we didn't know – uh, in addition to that was sort of this re repetitive low-level blast where instead of it, you know, marking as, 
you know, specific concussion syndromes where you're seeing the brain hit the inside of the skull repeatedly. This is more of a shearing in between gray and white matter throughout the brain. And we didn't have the tools to even really measure it. And I can tell you, my entire career has been as a breacher, right? As an explosive breacher, as a master breacher within one of our crisis response forces. And it's really where I, ha- where I hung my hat quite a bit. Did a lot of other things, but breaching was really foundational to my career. And what we didn't realize early on, because we, we were using formulas based on net explosive weight and minimum safe distance based upon open air rooms, based upon fragmentation, right? So worried about any sort of debris hitting me was really more what that minimum safe distance is calculated for, right? And so what we what we weren't taking into account was overpressure, much less reflective and refractive overpressure and, and how much that affects us and how little we can control those variables, right? So as I go in to clear a building, I can't control uh, what the overpressure is going to reflect down a hallway and hit you. And sometimes it's, it's crazy. You'll be in a stack and you're not even the first person. You're not the closest person to the charge, but you get zipped with an overpressure spike because of the way it bounced off the ceiling or the wall or anything yeah. else. And so we, we lack the ability to control those variables or even really uh, calculate for a lot of them because there's air density in the room and air, you know, uh, volume in the room, but there's also all these reflective <laughs> sort of uh, bounces. And the last thing I'll say about it is that uh, I've been going through a lot of this. I, I have a lot of, you know, TBI stuff going on right now. So I'm in a, some of these research studies and things like this. And I think where we're, where we're not quite at yet in the clinical side is we're still focused on deployment right? And deployment is very important. And there are a lot of high level TBIs and overpressure injuries in a deployed setting, right? As I went through combat, I would potentially, you know, obviously if you get IED'd or you have some significant firefight, you can get a lot of overpressure from those things. But what we're not, you know, quite grasping yet on some of these academic studies is that my overpressure risk for myself and most of my peers was much more apparent in training in, you know, back in the States, right? So, to give the example, as a master breacher or as a you know assault force sergeant major or breacher on a team, I would go through and I might on a combat mission, we might blow one, maybe two doors, maybe in a night, right? It might be up to 10 or whatever, but that'd be a pretty robust one. On average, maybe one or two explosions a night. Whereas in training, if it's a breaching day, I'm setting at least 10 to 15 of them myself. And between all the rest of the assault force, it's 40, 50, 100 explosions that I'm in the building for. I may not be in that stack closest to it, but as we said, we can't control some of those variables. And so the the really uh, what we're seeing more often now, and this is important as we as we sort of step away from those habitual combat tours and we go more into just training, is that I think we're going to, you know, we're – We've got to get a handle on the fact that the exposure risk is actually higher through repetitive low-level blasts during training. Exactly. Exactly. So, Captain Code, I'm actually going to um, ask you the next question because clearly we see that repeated low-level blast, blast overexposure um, is a problem within the soft community, whether, as you said, in the training or, or whether in theater. Um, so what is uh, the DHA or the clinical community doing um, in terms of their brain health policy to, to ensure and optimize uh, soft operators' uh, brain health? Well, uh, SOCOM writ large, uh, in 2015, we started to bring on board subject matter expertise at SOCOM um, so we could start to evaluate the scope. We, we heard from the operators. We heard from you know the ground up the issues that were taking place, and, and we paid attention to that. 
So we started to kind of compose subject matter expertise, bring them into the room, get recommendations on how to evaluate individuals, what should be included in that evaluation. Uh, and eventually that led to the SOCOM brain health policy, uh, which uh, General Thomas signed off right after I left the command. And it was it was a couple of years in the in the making type of thing. So uh, and that would be a comment uh, that we would want to get from uh, the guys at SOCOM about the impact and how they're executing the brain health policy. From a current DHA standpoint now, and this will be um, with regard to uh, all of DOD. So Section 734, which is part of the 2018 NDAA um, that um, Cong Congress mandated that we look at the longitudinally the effect of BLAST on service members over um, a period of time. So really throughout the life cycle of their career, what that impact would look like. Um, so that led to a very large effort uh, that is continuing to take place now and will com be completed by the end of 2023. Uh, there are multiple research areas within that uh, project, within that portfolio uh, that look at low-level blast and the impacts of low-level blast. Uh, but there are also things that are taking place in the field. So what we found is that the evaluation of the weapon system, even if through its programmatics, when it's being developed for blast overpressure, needs to take place. And those things are taking place. Tools available for planning ranges that would give you some estimate of uh, uh, blast risk or overpressure risk to an individual, PSI risk to an individual based on weapon systems that were um, solicited by. Uh, by the 734 group and recommended by the services as high offending types of weapons, you know, to include shoulder mounted, breaching, artillery, mortars, uh, 50 cals, you know, so big tier one weapon system group that was there that is being evaluated and has health hazard assessments from inception, building the weapon, the rounds that go through the weapon, the number of shots that are taking place in certain conditions out in uh, the training environment, specifically in garrison, because, I mean, and you guys know all bets are off when you go down range and you're Absolutely. in combat, right? Um, so through the point where you're wearing gauges, the ability to give feedback reports, uh, and, you know, and I think um, you guys have some of that activity taking place with uh, uh, joint health ready, readiness uh, mitigation or J-HARM folks that are doing some work with you guys as well as the Conquer folks doing work across the spectrum of soft to do those types of evaluations. Give unit reports on the exposure risk, individual reports on the exposure risk, but the eventual flow would be get that information, common data elements, kind of uh, background information, plus the blast overpressure uh, into the medical record. And so we are working through that process with an eventual goal of developing a program of record, much like hearing conservation or radiation protection, but for BLAST. And that will be for all of DOD. It has yet to be determined, you know, the periodicity uh, or who is considered high risk. The services will determine those things. SOCOM has already done that with the brain health policy. So uh, I'm going to uh, ask you guys, maybe you can give us some insight on the brain health policy there at SOCOM and um, 
kind of how you guys are starting to execute that over yeah thanks thanks for that sir and kind of three areas and i'll give it to matt to elaborate on but um you know the first one is early cognitive testing um, you know, systems that we have like Sabres and ANAM and the NCAT, which are all just assessment tools to check cognitive function and problem-solving skills beforehand. Then, then into the actual piece, like Matt, you know, as an AC-130 guy, I've probably fired, I, I, it's beyond counting. It's more than 60,105 rounds, less than a foot from my head. And when you think about the training, which is where you fired the most of those, and blast pressure at surface versus blast pressure at 10,000 feet are very different as well. Plus, the way your uh, oxygen intakes are and the way you respond to those things as far as hypoxic and, and reactions to overpressure all factor in there. So these are things that we just never even thought about. You know, as I was 27 years ago when I started flying these airplanes, you know, of my 32-year career, you know, kind of the last 27 all doing this. So, so re-looking at the science of each one of these higher risk uh, jobs, a master breacher, you know, a uh, heavy mortarman, if you will, in a ranger platoon, a ranger mortar platoon, into a MARSOC element, into a SEAL platoon, into a, an AC-130 crew, just as examples, Right. So each one of those now and now the wearing of these blast gauges, while not perfect, are starting to give us some data insight into who's being exposed to what to determine those categories. I wish we'd had these before to really, truly understand because we'd have some data sets that would help us. And then finally, kind of the repetitive uh, psychological maintenance or cognitive maintenance now that we do along the way. This is that checkup. Um, that's just part of just like your knee or your back or anything else is how am I do, how am I doing cognitively and then working across. So the brain health policy kind of helps us implement preventative life cycle and then ongoing maintenance, if you will. And then should there an issue arise, the proper documentation to make sure that we're taking care of that member and more importantly, well, not more importantly, but just as importantly, cycling the loop back in to prevent it from happening to those who come after him or her. And, and, and there are some yeah. and there are some weapon safety guidelines that are in the brain health policy Absolutely. as well, correct? Yes, and it's completely changing, you know, how many mortars you can fire or what distances. Matt's point about down hallway overpressures, as we get smarter on that, we have a system called SOFBIS or Special Operations Forces Basic Interoperability Standards. Think of them like OSHA standards of high-risk training that we do. So under the soft biz, there's about 19 subcategories, everything from medical to steep angle to jumping out of airplanes to shooting. It's so across Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, we have the same standard so we don't fall victim to some of this unique soft training that we do to make sure that we meet those things. So the preventative look, identifying those higher risk activities, making sure the safety mechanisms are in place, and then the consistent monitoring throughout are kind of the things that we're, I think we're doing. And Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, the brain health policy that you mentioned, sir, obviously that you, uh, you know, spearheaded uh, prior to leaving, you know, signed in early 2019, really mandated, hey, we're going we're gonna to take a more um, a frequent look at our folks for ANAM. We're going to institute something called the CASH, um, which really is, a, is, is an answer to guys like me and, and gals that, uh, 
you know, we've had a ton of baselines. I've been in soft my entire career, and I've taken multiple, multiple cognitive baselines. And so if, if I have my baseline at 12 years in service with a ton of stuff, and there's no way to kind of go back and catalog the prior exposure, you can see how that would be an issue, right? And so the cash obviously um, is one of our sort of answers to that, where we're going through, it's subjective, you know, obviously, because we're asking, a, what do you remember? And sort of having a guided interview of, of walking through, all right, hey, trying to catalog kind of what became, what came before that NCAT. Um, and then really looking at blast gauges, as Chief said. But what we've done on top of that over the last couple of years is that we've grown from where POTIF used to be only four domains. We used to have the physical, psychological, uh, social and family and spiritual. We've grown a cognitive domain now, right? So we've taken our, our cognitive performance folks out of the physical domain. We've married that with some of the brain health stuff that we're in concert with, with the surgeon's office, and created something that we could give it its own proper emphasis, right? Because it was sort of buried as a sub-LOE under another domain let's bring it together and put more light on this so that we can work with 70, 734 working group captain coda and other folks around dod so that we're taking this properly seriously right and so right now we're really in a lot of monitor phase right we're throwing a lot of stuff out there in different sensors whether that's you know neurocognitive assessment tools whether that's blast gauges whether that's you know our subjective self-report or some of the stuff that we're doing with qeg to do uh sort of brain mapping is Captain Coda helped stand up uh, Sabres back in the day. Uh, we're still we're still working through that and rolling those things out to get best practices of really structurally how is your brain talking to itself, uh, you know, point to point, node to node. Uh, because I'll bring it back to what we talked about at the very beginning, right? For me and for all of our population that's on the ground, Chief and everyone else, you know, when he was, you know, cocking all those cannons and shooting everything out of AC-130, what we care about is performance, right? And so you can monitor and I can be your test guinea pig and you can have all my dad all you want how does that help me stay on a team and 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 make sure that the mission's good right and so taking some of this and putting a performance lens on it to say hey we're going to structurally and, and objectively look at how your brain is is physically functioning and then we're going to do neurofeedback training and cognitive performance training to try to help us uh, to address any deficits or really even things that you're strong in to try to to try to raise your performance because if we can if we can put it in a performance narrative to say hey, I'm going to try to help you make better decisions faster. That's applicable across every single one of our MOS's rates, jobs, AFSCs, and it's also applicable across every level of, uh, you know, uh, every level of competition up into combat. Yeah, and it's important. We're working with the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Mr. Cisneros and his team, on how do I then take this and, and Congress, and how do we apply it to veterans as well, right? So, because there's a gap. When we start talking about, you know, neuroplasticity and elasticity of the brain, and over time, is this early onset Alzheimer's? Are there other things, medical conditions that start to come out of either brain lesions or, or pre-concussive impacts while on service? So, it's how do I... How do I gauge our retired and veteran communities to tie those together with the active duty community to get a holistic picture over time? And this is a great challenge, but it's one that we're committed to here in Special Operations Command. And there, there was also um, with Dr. Dan Pearl out of CNRM, the Just development, yeah, the development of the soft uh, brain tissue repository. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you know. Um, those are usually uh, provided post uh, death, uh, unfortunately, in that regard. But 
the volunteerism of the soft community to understand the spectrum of the issue has been really beneficial uh, with the donation of brains to that organization to study uh, what those impacts are, specifically when it, with regard to TBI and uh, brain health like that. So, um, so kudos to you guys for continuing that uh, uh, effort forward. Uh, I think it's critically important that uh, we find in vivo, not uh, post-mortem types of uh, capability. And I think that there are some studies happening uh, at SOCOM uh, yep. with imaging, right? Uh, do you guys, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, kind of some of the studies that are taking place in the brain health realm? Yeah. Um, so a couple things. Dr. Pearl is, uh, you know, he's the samples that he does have and some of the lesions of repeated concussive events and things we're learning from that can't be replicated anywhere. So, I mean, this is groundbreaking scientific, a scientific uh, journey, if you will. This is this is your advanced team on on traumatic brain injury and it's and it's scientific medical causes, if you will, or being able to see that. Places like University of Virginia and their piece, you know, Dr. Pearl's piece on that, and then University of Massachusetts, um, University of South Florida, and some of the things we're doing here with with a thing called Reblast and some of the studies that we're looking at now on repeated concussive events, overall brain health, and what those things mean um, are just a few, right? So we are working with, I mean, everybody from Duke Medical Center all the way up and across any any university or any leading medical institute that is studying the brain. We do a lot with the spinal cord injury and polytrauma center at James A. Haley uh, Center here in Tampa, uh, the Moffitt Cancer Center right now here in Tampa as well. We're all kind of synchronized and connected together as well as spinal cord and and, uh, and polytrauma uh, VA centers, trying to tie this, this constellation of helping agencies together using SOCOM, what we are able to do with our agility as, as a kind of test case in many of these cases. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as you know, sir, being up at the DOD level, you know, we're, we're looking, as you said, trying to figure out how can we, how can we better map these things uh, before we're all donating our brains to Dr. Pearl, right? And so uh, Reblast, UVA, two of the key ones specifically about uh, imaging. I was one of the study participants, one of the affected study participants for the UVA one. So I can say going up there and doing kind of my two days up there, uh, of, uh, you know, getting scanned and they're trying to figure out how do we best, you know, we, we've done a lot of great work on, uh, not we, uh, the general community has done a lot of great work on being able to see, uh, as I mentioned, kind of those multiple concussive events on the outsides of the brain and how that works and how that looks and CTE and all these things, but trying to figure out how do we highlight this shearing force, uh, from repetitive low level blast is, is a new challenge, right? And so, uh, you know, up at reblast at UMass, they're building these machines in house to try to figure out. UVA was looking at special contrast yeah. uh, that you know that we got to see how this would highlight uh, specifically on that. And as uh, as CCM mentioned, Haley, it's funny we have in this uh, this interview today because I just had my re uh, re interview from Haley uh, of one of the studies. You know, there's a pep, the prep program there, but that prep program is also being used as a feeder yeah. into a study, a long term study that yeah we're, that we're, we're both in. we're that, both yeah we're both patients. So, right? so yeah, so I had another. 20 minute, you know, sort of, Hey, uh, I need you to repeat back these numbers and remember these things, uh, yesterday afternoon. And so, um, I, I do want to highlight as we talk about this though, that, you know, there's been some things written, uh, you know, uh, 
different papers and all these things talking about operator syndrome and, and some of the some of the constellation of effects that we look at on this right and SOCOM doesn't currently prescribe to that term uh, mainly because uh, you know it, it's sort of connotes that it's only us that that are uh, that are they're facing this and and that's not really the case we know that obviously combat arms MOSs and different things in different communities also have the you know uh, exposure to these things but it is more prevalent if you look at the op tempo and in force utilization of soft over the last 10 and 20 years we have a higher percentage of folks that have been exposed and so right. that's what makes our community um, you know, fertile, unfortunately, fertile recruitment grounds for a lot of these studies. So we try to make sure that obviously through IRBs and Harpos and everything that whatever we're telling our folks that they can go do is safe. But we do want to we do want to, you know, incentivize to our folks, hey, this is a good way to pay it forward for those that are going to come after you to try to be involved in these studies uh, and hope to learn as much as we can to prevent this stuff in the future. That's so great to hear. And this is all such great stuff. Um, so become it's apparent through this conversation that at a minimum, a soft operator throughout his career is going to be exposed to um, repetitive, at minimum, repetitive subconcussive events. Um, and we know there is some data to indicate that um, it is associated with potential uh, neurocognitive decline, particularly reaction time. So what is um, uh, the soft community doing to mitigate the effects of particularly neurocognitive decline for your active duty soft operators? Yeah, um, and Matt, I'll let you elaborate on this one. I'll just, let me give you a couple pieces on this. Um, the first one is through monitoring and assessment to really understand the scope of, of, if you have a high functioning individual that's probably borderline OCD to start with, right? Because that's the only way you're getting into this is through repetitive perfection of a task, right? To almost to the point of, of failure, right? As a matter of fact, we teach to the point of failure and then push you beyond that, right? I mean, that's what it is. So now you have somebody who has a decline in neurocognitive function where you cannot do, whether it's a rapid racking and, and, and shooting drill as fast as they could or memory issues or this I was out at 10th Special Forces Group just a couple months ago, and they have a, it's a, it's a pistol reaction drill where you got to shoot the yellow square to the pink triangle to the blue circle, and it may be a red circle that comes up, and it's, it's how well can you, your, does your neurocognitive function process what you're seeing in order to, and it's just like the ANAM, I can't tell you how many O's I keep shooting, or damn, X gets the square again, right, because I did that wrong, because you're trying to do it so fast, because I'm competing with the dude next to me, you know, inadvertently because that's what we do. So, so it's a removing the stigma through repetitive monitoring. And then what happens, what, what through this operator's life cycle in this scenario is causing, is it, is it his or her MOS, you know, occupational specialty? Is it because they're a master breacher and the exposure? Is it just age? Is it this? So it's differentiating and disqualifying the factors that just naturally happen to us in age and then identifying those high-risk things along the way so we can mitigate those through safety protocols. We will continue to learn more every day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Chief Smith's spot on as far as that. That's the majority of what our surgeon's office and our medical community, soft specifically, is looking at is how are we monitoring and kind of getting our arms around this problem. One of the unique things with the soft population is that we've assessed and selected people, as we mentioned earlier, that are highly adaptable. And so oftentimes they may not have a significant drop in performance early on 
on because they're able to use other skills or experience and be able to connect the dots fast enough to where even though their gross reaction time is not as fast, because they've experienced so many of those repetitions, they're able to sort of overcome that. And the margin of error that that they then drop in performance is not as significant. And so one of the things that we've been working on quite a bit or our surgeon's office and medical folks is to create some soft norms and ultimately with the goal of it being a self-to-self comparison because each one of our people, uh, you know, we, we can't rely on just sort of a gross um, comparison of a norm that has people from 18 to 80 years old in the general population because a lot of our folks are going to score outside of what would consider to be normal or their decrement there. We're going to miss things if we're not looking for, uh, you know, ultimately we're looking at soft norms, but ultimately the gold standard for us is a self-to-self comparison to ensure that we see from your baseline and then as these episodic reattacks, how you've been affected and how you're overcoming that or not overcoming that. Yeah. But I'll, I'll speak to your question as far as what are we doing about it after that, right? Because there's a lot of monitor and all that stuff. And I'll tell you, I get sort of frustrated by the fact that a lot of it is just give me your data let me see how good or bad you're doing and then there's no as we said performance of how do I okay you found this but how do I do anything about it right for us in POTIF that's where we're trying to live is in cognitive performance training and in, in, um, you know really trying to do cognitive performance enhancement so we're lay, we're just in the same way that we're hiring world leaders in physical therapy and mental health and other things we're hiring world leading cognitive coaches and cognitive performance specialists and embedding them into our units so that they're part of the fabric of the unit and they're building trust and they're able to be on that training floor they're able to go out into these cqb and other uh training situations to understand the stress that the operators are going under but to also immediately train them with eye tracking and and uh, neurofeedback and other mechanisms uh, heart rate variability and things like that to try to ensure that they can get better we do know through studies that neuroplasticity is a thing and that it's possible to help create new neural pathways in the same way that when you work your muscles out, they can get stronger and become more resilient. We know through, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, not research that we did, but in the general, uh, you know, academic sense that there's a possibility of being able to work that right. And so we're layering in both physical, you know, person-to-person interactions in our units, but also working through things like Brain HQ, which is a commercially uh, available platform uh, that we have partnered with and bought licenses of to create a scalable, available uh, training platform, you know, on your tablet and, you know, phone or laptop so that our, as our folks are dispersed and they're not able to do those one-on-one training sessions that they still have the availability, right? As we liken cognitive to physical, physical is very easy because if my strength strength and conditioning coach writes me a physical training plan, I can do that anywhere. I can do it in a hotel gym. I can do it at Planet Fitness. I can do it at my garage gym, whatever. If my cognitive fitness coach gives me some mental exercises, I don't have that gym to be able to do that. I don't have eye-tracking goggles, and I don't have a, a light board or any of these things when I'm out traveling. So that's one of the reasons that we partnered with this company to say, okay, hey, what can we give our folks in their hands that they're going to have to be able to at least do some general cognitive of training to try to counter those uh, counter those declines, but also just to increase performance yeah. uh, overall. And and the other part is living with TBI. You know, mm-hmm. as, as we are both, <laughs> you know, we are both, you know, guests of the Poly Trauma Centers. Uh, you know, yeah. several times over. And part of it is, hey, you are not going to be, um, you're not going to be who you were. 
right? You have to recognize and work through these things. Um, you know, I was in an accident, had a cerebellum shift, if you will, after brain swelling, a couple other things. So, so okay, after that happens, what does new normal look like and how do you continue to perform at a level or perform, how do you re-baseline the level at which you can perform and recognize that just like any other injury, it's okay you know, be thankful you are where you are and then baseline your new normal and maximize that. So that's a hard thing to do for for folks to, to re-baseline what their new normal is. So it's it's working through that and keeping them on the team um, wherever they're at. And then take people in executive levels, you know, some of our, execu- our leaders across the world who have also been exposed to this and now, you know, in a different type of sleep-deprived uh, transactional relationship that you find yourself in that are, it's affecting the entire enterprise. It affects decision-making as well. So it's understanding that you are making the best decisions for yourself, that somebody is monitoring that because you are ultimately responsible for making decisions, you know, for an organization, if you will. I think uh, just to make a couple comments um, and then probably a question I'll throw in there too, but uh, with the the change in war fighting and the cognitive stress loads because of all the information that's coming at you, I mean specifically, I mean the um, soft operator world. That's that's just decision making is key, and you guys talked about that because it could be life or death decision making, right? So I think that um, just based on um, what I had seen over those years, that the real life training scenarios, the stress loads that the soft environment puts on, the training uh, uh, and execution of missions within the training environment is really key, like what you said, for that repetition so that individuals don't get caught up in trying to make a decision um, under healthy brain circumstances, right? But then also retraining through if they do have injury of some sort. So like what you said, um, Chief Smith, about uh, being able to kind of have a reset and be good with that. You know, this is where you're at. You're still able to execute. You're going to perform at a high level because you were just way far and above, you know, a certain level for war fighting uh, as far as that's concerned and all the years of experience that you have in in you. And that that brings me to the soft truths, right? Quality over quantity. You can't train individuals to be soft operators in an emergency. Um, but the impact of TBI in this regard, uh, are, are there other ways that you're trying to stress load individuals because the competition for blood flow to the brain or muscles in an emergency environment um, Outside of, you know, uh, separating those facts, can you talk a little bit about how do you synchronize that either prior to going to a shoot house or without getting into detail, you know, that you can't, but or, or even just in the gym itself? Yeah. So hopefully, right, some of this cognitive domain testing and baselining will help us just like we can see, hey, you're down 30 pounds on your lifts you know, on the rig today, like what's going on? Your body temperature is up 0.3 degrees. Okay. Hopefully we get to that. Uh, I'll give you a, you know, just a, a trying to, again, keep it unclass and not giving away, you know, the test, if you will. But, you know, I flew helicopters my last couple of years. And one of the things we would do to check cognitive function under stress 
to simulate that would be while taking off and running checklists, you had to describe a gun malfunction. So you're doing a cognitive function while performing a, sig a, a significant physical lift, right? And you would check reaction times on those things over time as an instructor and an evaluator. My job would be to watch my, my teammates and see whether or not, you know, I'm seeing an improving, sustaining, or a declination of their, of their cognitive or physical function while under load. Matt, I know that you guys do very yeah, similar. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think, I think we've been trying to do this for years and years and years, right? So, like, uh, you know, doing Kim's games and things like that while doing other high physical stress, uh, you know, uh, kind of training evolutions has been around forever, but it was more sort of like a blunt hammer, right? Yeah. Like we didn't we didn't have the ability to sort of isolate and distill out exactly what the stimuli we were putting in and then what it was actually doing in the body to each person, right? It was more just like, hey, we're all going to go run 12 miles. In the middle of this, you're going to see a map. You're going to have five minutes to look at the map. And when you get back the other six miles, you're going to draw the map as best you can. And we're going to make fun of you if your drawing sucks. And if it's good, then we'll say great. And then there was really nothing else out of it, right? So it was just sort of a blunt force, but it was necessary. And, I, hey, I loved it. I think it's good for us, and I think it does help. You know, it, sure. it's better than nothing, right, as sure. far as, like, you know, hip pocket training-wise, trying to connect the fact that it's not all just about your physical performance, right? It, it really isn't. It's much more about – I, obviously, physical performance is foundational, and we cannot, we'll never get away from it. But we have to also rec recognize that common sense-wise, we would forsake the physical to our own detriment as special operators who are – it's necessary for us to do some very physically demanding things to get to the point where the decision is necessary, right? So all that being said, <laughs> foundationally, we're making sure that happens. And when we get there, it is much more important – to, to have someone who is a, a thinking athlete who has something that may, somebody that makes the right decisions under stress, right? And so continuing to put um, our folks into stressful situations in training is not something new, but it is something that we're trying to, trying to be more scientific about, right? As Chief said, as we're looking at sort of these sensors and these other things, we want to make sure that we're monitoring it to an academic level and not just sort of to a blunt force level yeah. of like, all right, you either did good on this run or you didn't, right? It's it's all the other things. And I'll say it's all a web of interconnectedness, which is what really I've had to learn over the last few years, like getting all of a sudden to having like neuroendocrine issues and all of these other constellation of things that have jumped on my back and a lot of my peers' backs that we didn't expect. Yep. You know, PTSD or TBI symptoms and things like that or like a behavioral health thing, not a physical how I feel and structure-wise. And so I'm trying to lean more towards talking about that because I think we will get more people more willing to talk about it. That's what made me willing to talk about it is instead of like, you know, a lot of us want to talk about our performance and not our right. feelings, right? So right. instead of being, hey, uh, how are you feeling? It's like, no, you, you know, for me, I felt like I was fighting my own body, right? right? Like my body structurally was not doing what I wanted it to do. And it was, you know, uh, hormones out of whack and all these other things. And so that, of course, was affecting my mind. But I wasn't connecting the dots that it started in the mind and went to the body and is now back in the mind. And, right? we're, and, and so, we're medicating yeah. in today's world, right? They either, we yeah, either yeah. we either self-medicate yeah. because we're with the team and that leads to all kinds of problems, whether it's alcohol, narcotics, or or the docs are giving you either ibuprofen or yeah. pick pick a muscle relaxer or a skeletal thing right. or a sleeping pill, a go no go pill. And it's not their fault either because everybody's trying to, but it's pieces of the same thing. Yeah. 
I try to oversimplify this to, you know, Matt and I were out at the Tampa Bay Bucks game here recently, and, and Tom Brady's 44 years old, right, out there throwing for the NFL. But when you think about practice, he always wears that, that, that yellow jersey where he doesn't get hit. So how is he able still to throw accurate passes under a stressful situation knowing the playbook when all these disparate functions are all happening, right? Wide receiver's got to do this. He's got to read the defense. Okay, if he's getting creamed every day in practice, he's not going to have that same cognitive function over 20 years later because he's been getting sacked every day in practice. We sack each other every day in practice through blast, repetitive blast events. So that's, Captain Cody, to your point, we've got to think smarter about how do I still run the play without sacking the quarterback every play in practice because the the repeated sacks, i.e. concussive events, are what then manifests what we see today. Yeah, such a good point. And that's why one of our primary research partners is the sports medicine community because a lot of what they see is very similar um, to some aspects of TBI. And, um, and within the element of uh, DHA, so TBI-COE is developed products, right? We develop uh, clinical recommendations and other, but one aspect is the progressive return to activity. So it's a monitored, someone gets an acute concussion, uh, they are then, you know, monitored through the system until they're cleared clinically. So cleared clinically means you can medically return to your unit. And I think there there's discussion about the definition of return to full duty. I always say, I don't return people to full duty as a medical officer. That's the unit's responsibility. Um, wh- what do you guys think about that concept that w- that the medical community really clears clinically, but you guys have to task them to make sure that they're ready and, and fit for full duty? Yeah, you're pulling me off an of injured reserve, right? You're saying I can come off an of injured reserve. Me as the coach now, I have to determine when you're going in the game. Right. That's that. I mean, again, I'm sorry to keep using sports analogies. I'm just depending on who the audience is, just using different approaches where, you know, some some common common things. It's it's the same thing. We do not have the ability right now with Manning to put somebody on injured reserve. Right. For an extended period of time, both medically or or policy wise, because, you know, this at at one year. okay, you're triggering a medical evaluation board and all these other things that start happening. Now, to Matt's point where the member's body is fighting himself, he needs to go on the disabled list. He, we need to take him down, whether it's cognitive or physical, but he's not going to say anything because of that policy. So there has to be a piece here where the medical guys and the team, hey, we're going to pull him out of the game. We're going to put him on the disabled list. Just everything freeze. And I know we had that for a while under combat injuries, but under training injuries, we don't necessarily have that, which is what prevents, in my opinion, a lot of times people from seeking help because they're worried about getting pulled off the team, losing the financial pieces that come with it, losing the identity pieces, and potentially losing career. The same reason a a, a, a first-year NFL linebacker is not going to tell you his knee's hurting until he snaps his Achilles, right, or his, his ACL, rather. 
right? Is I mean, that would be weird if your knees hurt and you snap your Achilles, but that's a whole different discussion. So there's <laughs> my TBI. There's my TBI for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so hopefully that makes sense. But. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this happened to me. This is my story, right? Like, I, I was a team sergeant. I had worked my way up. I had uh, about 10 years on a team at the time and got rear-ended while I was sitting at a red light, and a guy hit me doing 65, never touched his brakes, right? And so the greatest thing that happened to me was they allowed me to stay on a team. The worst thing that happened to me was that they allowed me to stay on a team. So having, at that point, my second neck surgery and my first lower back surgery and a shoulder surgery and all the physical things that were going on while remaining a team sergeant because I was not going to come off of a team willingly whatsoever, much less being the guy in charge of it, because that's the pinnacle in my career field. I had worked my entire career to become a team sergeant, finally was one, and you would have had to drag me out of there, period. And in order to get the credit, you have to do X amount of time. The, exactly. The system has become so rigid yep. that there's, in order to progress, there's no, there's no, you if especially an Army special. I would right? not be a sergeant major had I come off the team. Right. Period. So I was only about a year into my team sergeant time. I needed to do two years. And really, to be really competitive, you work to try to get a third year, right? And so I was able to get a third year. Why I bring this up is that there was no talk really at the time about the mental part of that concussion from that really bad injury, right? Because to your point, sir, the medics at the hospital had said, okay, you got a concussion, but you'll be fine in a week or two yeah. or whatever, you know? And so I was sort of gone back in and because I was still able to operate at a high level and to, to, uh, you know, again, duct tape and, and string or whatever to put it through. I look back now and I'm like, man, cognitively, I was not, uh, you know, I was kind of fuzzy, but at the time was still able to make decisions and be in meetings and whatever else, even in a neck brace. Um, and so it's, it's very tough because had you pulled me out of that team right then, um, I would be in a completely different part of my career right now. And I right. probably, you know, so it's a very double-edged sword on these things, right? Like I said, the best thing that happened to me was that they let me remain with my tribe and with my team and with my crew. But the worst thing probably physically for me was that because now I've had several more neck surgeries on top of that one uh, because I, you know, started jumping again 90 days later and, and because of some of this TBI stuff that I probably, you know, there's probably other ways that could have been addressed. I made him stop jumping. He was jumping all the way up until last year. Which is insane to me, right? It's it, and I get it because it's part of cultural identity. But the member is because it identifies with who he is. He's right. not going to do it himself, right? It's the only thing that's you know. I so old crotchety thing, but, people yeah. like me got to yell at him, right? So in order in order to that, so they'll get the help that they need. And this is the point about just leadership holistically. And the problem is, is that his guys are dependent on him in this case, so he's not going to come off, right? Right. So it, it just, it compounds as you go along the way. That's the difference in the military and sports is the sports, while you're part of a team, it's inherently individual because it's contractual. And transactual, yeah. Right. In the military, it's inherently, your entire identity is tied to the team. There is no getting traded to another team. That's out. I mean, in this, so, so, so what do you do? So it's this loss of identity compounded with, the mild TBI that is never treated properly. So noise, sensitivity, light, rest, you know, all the things that are supposed to go with that never get treated and you continue to do repetitive micro-concussive events on top of it. We are our own worst enemies. We're idiots. 
but we're really good. Yeah, but we're really good at being idiots. That holistic approach and holistic leadership you talked about is critical, but also inclusion of family and understanding the scope of the problem. Because, you know, I saw a lot of guys where their leadership would tell them to come in. They're like, you know, go pack sand. But if their spouse told them to come in, they were in. And that's what mine did. Mine got tired of it, right? I'm not listening to it anymore. Go. Either you go or I'm calling someone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and it's a common tale. You're right, sir, because you've got three support systems, right? You've got the team, you've got family, and you have your spirituality, right? And and all of those are like capacitors. They are, it's like a capacitor that fills the capacity, right? And 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 usually, I don't want to stereotype it, but usually the family one is the one that suffers the most because because stereotypically most most folks identify with their team because of the deployment schedule. That's what the last 20 years did is it, it, it came at a cost of family, which is why we saw divorce rates and alcoholism and some of these other things. It's because there's, there's both moral and physical and spiritual injury happening. And I'm not making excuses for bad choices, but there are factors that go into that. And if you do not have a good, strong spiritual and family base, then you're going to put it all on with the team and you're going to kill yourself and ruin your, ruin your relationship with your, with your spouse and your children along the way. And that's, we've seen that happen more often than not, usually post some sort of physical, psychological trauma that the member has refused to seek help for. That, that aspect yes. of uh, <laughs> rest work cycle, right? So we haven't talked about sleep. The importance of sleep and how SOCOM views the importance of sleep, especially with the way missions are conducted in the soft environment. Can you guys speak to that a little bit? We're still terrible. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it starts right here. I'm terrible, right? I mean, I know the polytrauma guys are working on me. I get, you know, four to five and a half hours of sleep, and I know it's not enough. I, uh, you know, that we're working on it, right? But at the if you start working that way down you have got to program that in there. It's the first thing that we sacrifice and we still do it. We sacrifice sleep and deployed. We sacrifice diet, right? Because you're grabbing something and going and you're not sleeping enough because, you know, so then it's rippets or whatever coffee, you know, and, and, uh, and, and Copenhagen for half the night, right? To keep those stimulants because of the OCD nature, the obsessive compulsive nature of success, of whatever that mission is. That's what we've seen over time in Camp Coda. I know you know that better than anybody. So now as we unpack that and we start to learn how important sleep really, really is in the life cycle of health, sleep followed by nutrition, followed by exercise. And that it's, and it's really a really tight Venn diagram of that where, where they're all important, but they're, they're their own separate things. So we are trying to program that in. I don't think we're doing a, a good enough job as we should and it's like mental health, if you will, the stigma of saying, hey, man, I'm not sleeping enough. I need an extra hour or whatever. They're not they're still not doing it right. We're, we're continuing to chip away at that. But I will tell you from my assessment, we're still failing at, at sleep. Yeah, I think we all agree that it's foundationally important. We all the more we talk about it and the more we learn about it and we can do all the education and, and people will learn how important it is and how it affects all of your hormones and everything else. And still every single person that's uh, high ranking or whatever is 
sacrificing sleep and they're the ones like chief just said like we all do like you really need to program that in and none of us like you wouldn't be where you're at right now like it's it's sort of like work-life balance uh like a four-star will get up and talk about work-life balance and yeah maybe at that level when you have whatever but would you have gotten to that this spot if you had maintained a very strict work-life balance and gotten sleep no right and it will always still be the case like if you're sleeping and i'm not you're a dirt bag right like that's yeah. that's soft culture if i'm doing work and you're sleeping you're a dirt bag right and it's unfortunate it shouldn't be that way but it is that way right and so for us it's really programming and trying to figure out how can we get the best sleep possible how can we educate our folks that they do need to program more of it in um and and know that it will affect you cognitively like we train that sleep is something that we want to train to not have to do like if you gave us the option of not having to sleep for a week and there was a way I could train that we would all sign up immediately because the more hours in the day that I can do things means the more I can be laser focused on mission accomplishment and beating everybody else. Yep. But then take, right? but then take injury, whether it's psychological, you know, so I have uh, you know, with this, the brain swell, if I lay down, I start to start to get dizzy or something along those lines. Yeah. So next thing you know, you're up, your back hurts, your neck, you know, yeah. you know, we're, we're all on, you know, surgery number pick one. Right. So, um, so now you're up, you're readjusting shoulder, back, neck, head, all the things, you know, that, that bumps and bruises along. And I don't want to look, the audience can be like, yeah. Oh my God, I'm never doing that. It's horrible. Right. No, but this is when these things happen, then it compounds and it manifests in a lack of sleep. You're up at three o'clock in the morning because your back hurts or your neck hurts, or you're not, your brain's your jumbled apnea, up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So now the next thing you know, you're sitting there, you know, checking your phone or doing something else. Now you got blue light on you and it's just, you're screwed. Yeah. And I did this. I raised my hand. Uh, I did it first when I was an operational. And then when I came here and said, Hey, I am like chronically fatigued. Like I don't feel right. I'm not, I am not who I should be. Like I'm, I am now feeling it behaviorally. I'm feeling it, uh, as far as like hormonally, all these things, like I can barely pull myself out of bed and I'm a very high functioning 18 series at that time. First Sergeant, like I didn't get here by not being able to get up and go. And, uh, and so I would, I raised my, I went to the medics and said, I first did it operationally. I, I got a sleep study at home garbage one that said, yeah, I was just below the level. And they told me, Hey, keep on going. You're doing fine. And, uh, it, I wasn't doing fine and it continued to compound until finally I had to go back, uh, and, you know, a couple years later and say, Hey, listen, we either got to fix this or I got to get out of the military. Like, I don't know what's going on. I cannot do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and on the surface, every one of my NCOER still said I was the greatest person that had ever walked the planet. All of my performance was great, but I knew that it was not. I was putting electrical tape over check engine lights, right? And so finally going in and realizing like, hey, most of it is, a lot of it is about sleep. A lot of it is between TBI and same kind of things and chronic pain and all these things. That's that sort of web of interconnected, you know, constellation of symptoms that TBI plays a huge part of. We don't know what the percentage of it is, whether, you know, all those things. But that's really, I think, to me, the most important thing is just having these conversations and at least letting people know. Because at the time, I thought I was the only one feeling that way. But right I wonder now. how many of them had sleep apnea before, right? right? And then, so the, the thing about the, the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, your organization, yeah. that, that I think is so special, right, that we – hope to continue to latch on to and learn and, and exchange with is the ability to see ourselves and recognize that it's not an isolated incident, that there are, there are 
several into clusters into into specialties if you will based on based on careers that make you higher medium or lower risk to have this but no matter what if you experience a traumatic brain injury or something along these lines associated with some of these other musculoskeletal things coupled with sleep hey hey we're all working hard to find that path that helps get you and make you the most resilient human uh, you know, mother, father, husband, sister, brother, whatever that is uh, that you can be. And I think that's the true magic of what stuff like this is. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if you know, but my background clinically is actually sleep medicine. And I uh, worked at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and their sleep research center. So I just want our audience to know that the DOD is certainly taking um, military sleep research very seriously. And they're looking at all different aspects. So just sleep generally, how to maximize sleep and potentially devices that can maximize a short sleep episode. Um, and then also looking particularly of uh, sleep consequences of TBI and, and medications or, or other devices that could um, uh, mitigate some of those effects. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, it's probably in a lot of our audience's minds because we're hearing it a lot in the media, is about Havana syndrome. So um, a lot of the symptoms of Havana syndrome are similar to the symptoms of TBI. So that's kind of the newest in the TBI realm, even though we're not um, uh, positive of what exactly is causing it. But one of the theories is by directed energy. Um, so the official name for it, um, in case our audience doesn't know, is AHI or anomalous health incidents. Um, so just wanted to know if that is that something that is concerning to a uh, soft community um, and is that something that you are uh, surveilling? Yeah, Mary, it's a great question, and I'll, I'll I'll carefully answer this one. Is there's more unknowns than there are knowns about anomalous health incidents or AHIs? I, I will tell you that special operations forces, based on the inherent disparate uh, nature of how we employ and deploy, or deploy and employ. Um, oftentimes to embassies where we're seeing a lot of this, oftentimes to on the verges or on the fringes or on the edges of these eras, areas of, of increased great power competition lead to increased risk of things like directed energy or whatever other symptoms, whether it's foodborne, particle-borne, uh, energy-borne, um, you know, atmospheric, whatever it is that we have unbelievable professionals, you know, trying to, trying to really, really get to the root cause of, of these incidents. Um, it's clearly an, a concern for SOF and, and something that we pay very, very close attention. We work very closely, uh, you know, with the agencies that investigate this very closely. And, and while, while we, um, are not seeing it on a grand scale, if you will. We are seeing incidents occur that that absolutely have implications for special operations forces. So so it's something that we pay very, very close attention to. And, and I'm confident we'll get to the root cause of it sooner rather than later, and then we'll understand the best ways to combat it or prevent it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Captain Kuda, do you have anything to add as the director of TBICOE? of how um, uh, we are uh, interacting with the State Department and so forth in, in this AHI realm. Uh, sure, uh, we're, we're continuing to engage, so, so you guys know, uh, in those meetings so we can understand the impact uh, on uh, the individuals who 
are potentially exposed to this. There's a lot yet to be determined, uh, but there, um, there is information that's starting to come out about how to evaluate, where to evaluate, and systems that are going to uh, be in place so that we can, just like with any other injury, get to those individuals as soon as possible and have direct access into the right resources uh, so they can get the care they need. That's great. That's so great to hear. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation. This was so great. I I know me myself have gained so much from this conversation, so I hope our listeners have as well. And hopefully we could have you back um, for further conversations. Uh, absolutely. We appreciate you. Appreciate you having us on an opportunity to come speak on it. I think, like I said, I think the the work that Captain Coda is doing and, and the team out there at the TBI COE, along with our veterans piece, along with Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, USD PNR, uh, that does this, as well as our members of Congress that are spending a lot of time having these discussions of, A, how can we help and how do we put all these pieces together? Um, while Matt and I are horrible examples of resiliency and, and working through it, you know, and both underslept and malnourished and all the other problem, you know, indicators that Captain Coda, I'm sure, is laughing about right now. Um, without um, the preservation of the force and family and without the team that we have here, we certainly would not be where we're at right now. So yeah. while we emphasize some of our personal challenges that we're overcoming, um, I will tell you that that is an incredible team here at US SOCOM that are doing everything they can of unbelievable professionals uh, to do everything they can for for the warfighter and that's that and and our families that's that's what I think where the most important piece is and, and venues like this and organizations like yours are what help us make it work so thank you for that yeah we we greatly appreciate you guys being on and uh, I just want to take this quick moment to say that it was truly an honor to serve with such elite warfighters like yourselves and throughout the organization. And, and just, I am so proud to have been in that organization and, and just to have known guys like you. And I'm going to give a shout out to Sergeant Major F. Bowling as well uh, during my time uh, that I was there uh, for all that he did for the organization. So thank you for taking this time out. I know you guys are busy and thank you for everything that you guys do and that SOCOM does for our country. Uh, your mission is so critically important. So thank you. And we look forward to a, a discussion in the future. Thanks. This has been a special Brain Injury Awareness Month episode of Picking Your Brain with the hosts of SoftCast, the U.S. SOCOM's official podcast. For more on SoftCast and the U.S. Special Operations Command, visit www.socom.mil. To learn more about TBICOE's clinical resources and related educational materials, visit www.health.mil TBICOE. Picking Your Brain is a podcast series from the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, or TBICOE, that focuses on the care and recovery of service members and veterans who have sustained a TBI. It's produced and edited by Vinnie White and hosted by me, Kate Perlman.